and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom and Paul today. Hello both. Hi Colette. Hello. Can we call this a Christmas special? I don't see why, why not. not. Yeah. Why not? Why not? There's nothing particularly Christmassy about it per se. Um, but we do have a meaning ruling on the Wagatha Christie saga, which is all Tom and I want for Christmas. So I'm pretty happy about that. We're also going to look into the Labour leader, Keir Starmer's coming under fire by free speech advocates for banning a discussion on suspension of former party leader Jeremy Corbyn, um, and also Ofcom announcing its plans to extend its reach into streaming services. Johnny Depp has also appealed to the High Court ruling that labelled him a wife-beater, and the Tate Foundation has suspended one of their curators, Mark Godfrey, for publicly criticising the museum's decisions on Twitter. But to start with, we will talk about the meaning ruling in Bardi and Rooney. As you all know, last year, Colleen Rooney claimed Rebecca Vardy had been leaking stories from her private Instagram account to the Sun newspaper. Counsel for Rooney told Mr Justice Warby that um, the original post accused Rebecca Vardy's account, not Mrs Vardy herself. Nevertheless, Mr Justice Warby found that the meaning behind the post was understood to direct guilt at Vardy specifically giving grounds for a defamation claim to continue. The case has, however, been stayed while the parties try to reach settlement through mediation. I don't think you've missed anything at all. It is a relatively straightforward uh, ruling. Um, those familiar with the chase levels of meaning will instantly spot what's happened. Claimant has claimed chase level one. Defendant claimed chase level two. Court said it's chase level one. So an imputation of guilt rather than uh, reasonable grounds to suspect. Um, it will be interesting to see whether it's possible to settle this case. Uh, as I recall, uh, Colleen Rooney was was quite forthright and uh, public with her insistence that she would um, prove the truth of the allegations and that she'd gone and hired all these IT experts to prove the truth uh, of what had happened. Um, so... If there is a climb down from the defence here, it'll be quite an interesting one because it'll mean an absolute determination to go for that nuclear defence of truth just falling away, um, which is quite unusual, I think. Um, but yeah, we'll wait to see uh, if this makes it to trial, uh, which if it does, will be sometime uh, next year. So... Moving on then to uh, the Labour Party, uh, which is coming under fire at the moment, leader of the Labour Party, um, is being accused of censoring free speech by um, banning a discussion of Jeremy Corbyn's suspension. Um, this came off the back of the decision by Labour to suspend several members after their local party passed a motion in support of Mr Corbyn. Um, and then the Youth Labour National Committee was asked to take down a statement of support for Mr Corbyn. Is um, Sakir right here? I, the, these messages are coming from Labour head office. And so do you think this is an example of stifling free speech and discussion? Um, no. Why do I say no? I've no idea. You should be saying yes. You always say. I know. I know. I know. I, well, I know that you're going to say yes because uh, you know. But I, no, I. I don't actually. I kind of. I, I don't sort of have a problem with this. I, I, 
as far as I can tell, but I, but I don't actually know. As far as I can tell, it was the, the the party head office had asked for the removal of a statement criticizing uh, Keir Starmer's suspension of Mr. Corbyn. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, what's what's sort of wrong with that? I mean, that that's them sort of saying, look, this isn't appropriate for you to criticise the um, leader in this way as part of the rules of the club, the club being Labour. You know, if you want to be in our club, Labour, um, or associated with Labour, you have to follow our rules. I, I sort of don't have a problem with that. But at what point do you need to encourage discussion in a political party and this is, you You have every right to criticise the leader. You don't have to follow dogmatically, surely. No, well, they, but this is the thing. I mean, it, the the they were asked to remove the statement. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were asked to m- remove the statement. And this is the thing that they're complaining about. Were they forced to? They've been threatened with suspension. Um, and the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, has said publicly that she will happily suspend thousands of Labour members if she has to in order to uh, put down this dissent. So I think it goes beyond the, the mere request for removal of a single statement. Uh, there's, there's there's something much bigger at work here. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think this is... This has become such a mad issue now that if I were a member of the Labour Party and I came onto this podcast and said that this was a bad idea, right? I could be suspended from the Labour Party because I'd be showing dissent against uh, the, the, the decision of Keir Starmer. Now, I'm not a member of the Labour Party, so it's not going to happen to me, but I'm quite sure that if I do say that here, somebody will dig it up at some point. So if I ever wanted to join the Labour Party, I'd probably be banned preemptively. Um I think there is a problem with this. I think there's a, there's a problem with it politically, but that, that's not really what we're here to talk about. Um, is there a legal problem here? I think the Labour Party is on dicey legal ground, but not specifically owing to the European Convention right to freedom of expression. The dicey legal ground that the Labour Party is on in imposing these restrictions on uh, speech, largely at the constituency party level, is a matter of contract law, because it's the law of contract that governs the relationship between the members of the party and the party itself. Um, And should the Labour Party attempt to suspend people, I note that a number of prominent people have already been suspended, uh, including a a prominent Jewish activist for speaking out in support of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, uh, If the party attempts to suspend these people, it will need to do so in accordance with its own rule book. And it seems to me uh, unclear at present what exactly the charges against these members are, other than that they've done something that Keir Starmer doesn't like, which is to dissent against him. I mean, I tend to take the view that Colette raised in a question, which is that in a political party, you should be able to question uh, the decisions made by uh, the leader of that party, because that's a fairly fundamental tenet of democracy. Um, But, you know, again, that's a political issue. The legal one is what rule have they broken and uh, have 
the procedures that should be followed been followed. I and mean, you know, when Angela Rayner comes out and says that she will suspend thousands of people, perhaps that's hyperbole in her speech. But if that's what she actually means, then that would definitely be the kind of political interference in disciplinary processes that the EHRC's report found were indirectly discriminatory because uh, uh, of the impact that they had, uh, or were at least were seen to have, uh, on the Jewish community. So that would be unlawful. It's 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 a quagmire, um, and I think. You know, there there are seriously dicey legal issues here for the Labour Party to have to navigate as a matter of contract law and potentially also as a matter of equalities law, not as a matter of convention free speech law because it's uh, not a public body. Um, but the biggest, of course, uh, issue that the party has to navigate is a political one. And uh, I'm sure we could all say lots about the political issues in the Labour Party at the moment, but happily that's not what the podcast is for. So... I won't. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't see the contract issue. If you uh, have a contract as a, a, a as a, a member of uh, the Labour Party and it's breached, then your your remedies would be damages in the first instance. Well, that won't be what they seek. Is it the members be seeking specific performance readmittance? Well, they won't. They won't get that because um, no judge is going to force one party to allow another party back into uh, what is essentially a private members' club. I mean, in terms of in terms of the sort of free speech issues, um, I I don't see the legal uh, problem here. I don't particularly see the the sort of political issue either, in the sense that. Uh, criticism within the party about party decisions um, and criticism from outside about what's going on within I sort of I, I sort of see it as a question of um, the rules of the club you know if you want to play in our treehouse this is what you have to do I don't have a problem with that um generally Listen, um, Keir Starmer can't stop anybody from criticising him for what he's done outside of, of Labour. The point is, uh, if you want to be in Labour, you can't criticise Keir Starmer. Well, um, I mean, if, 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 I think I would, I would find that significantly more convincing if the Labour Party had said you can't criticise Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader. They haven't. Um, and there was an awful lot of criticism and it didn't result in people having the whip withdrawn or members being suspended. Um, now, you know, the, the danger here is that we'll just descend into a political debate, um, which you know I don't want to do. But I think that there, uh, I think there is a free speech issue going on. You know, I just don't think it's illegal. I don't think that the legal issue in play is a free speech one. I certainly think that there's a political free speech issue here um, because the without wanting to get too deeply into the political stuff, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't accept that the Labour Party is quite as you describe it, um, as a kind of dictatorial club where the rules exist. The leader says you know, jump and everybody else just has to say how high or get kicked out. 
Um, I don't think that that's mm -hmm. the way that a political party should operate. I, I, I note it is very much the way the Brexit party operated because it did set up as a private company. Um, but a political party is supposed, maybe I'm too idealistic for <laughs> politics, but it's supposed to be something that practices at least a degree of the democracy that they preach. Um, uh, and, and, and that seems to be the, the, uh, the issue. Yeah, here. Well, that, but that strikes me more as a sort of ma uh, ethical matter about the, the club itself, the association itself. But... Well, like I say, it's not a legal. It's not a, the free speech issue is not a legal one. Um, but we may well see contract-based claims. Uh, I read an article recently by a, uh, an, uh, a barrister who has represented people in these sorts of cases, saying there were contractual issues. Um, but you know, there we are. I'm not a specialist in contract law, so I'm not the person to give you a definitive. Uh, answer on that. Maybe we should change the title to the Media and Contract Law Podcast. Well, and hire a contract lawyer. Well, I say hire. Persuade a contract lawyer to come on and do this for free. Yeah, we could hire them or lower them. I mean, it depends how tall they are. <laughs> <laughs> there's um, there's one point I want to pick up on, something that you said, Tom. Um, you, you said that because the Labour Party is not a public body, the free speech laws don't apply. What do you mean by that? Oh, quite straightforwardly, the, um, you know, Paul is uh, absolutely right when he says the Labour Party is a private members club. It is um, an, an incorporated association. Uh, essentially, it is it does not fulfil any public functions. It's not a it's not an arm of local government or anything like that. Um, so it is not bound by Section 6 of the Human Rights Act, and because of that, it has no statutory obligation to protect human rights. Um, it, it operates much as any other incorporated association would, so it is, it is private, um, and thus it cannot be sued for a breach of Article 10 because it has no legal obligation to protect Article 10. Uh, what it can be sued for is a breach of its own rule book by its members, because that would constitute a breach of the terms of the contract that they have via their membership. But it's a particularly interesting one with uh, the Labour Party and its own membership being two distinct um, parts of, you know, or two sides of the same coin in many ways, because obviously once, if the Labour Party gets into government, then they are a public body. So it it seems like if you're not following the rules that you would practice when you're in office in your own private company, well, not company, but your own private um, establishments, that doesn't look good. Ah, but that's a political problem, isn't it? That's not a legal so, problem, but political and, 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 Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just uh, to, to think that, that you can draw that line so neatly and say, well, we're at technically, technically, we're not a public body, so these rules don't apply, is... Um, yeah, tenuous. But but the other issue that it raises, just very briefly before we move on, is uh, just how easily you can use that phrase free speech and for it to gain traction. Um, and, and it demonstrates sort of how sort of misunderstood the term free speech is. I mean, here it's being used for its political coinage, but, and, and so its political value. But, um, 
it's that idea that every time you talk about something political, uh, the the what usually follows is that well, this is free speech. It just doesn't work like that. It's so misunderstood. More people need to listen to the podcast. Clearly. Well, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> Fix all the problems. Um, let's move on to the new Ofcom report that is um, suggesting an extension of Ofcom's powers into the streaming services like Netflix, Now TV, Apple TV, etc. This is based on a finding in the report that 38% of 16 to 34 year olds watch broadcast content, content and most of their viewing comes from streaming services. So Ofcom has quite rightfully realised that they're going to become irrelevant in the next 10 to 15 years if they don't change the way that they practice. Um, but I wonder, you, you know, they're, they're wanting to extend their reach into streaming services and encourage streaming services to, uh, to do more public broadcasting. Do they have any right to make these suggestions? Why, how can they claim that they're going to be able to govern netflix or now tv yeah this is the this is the problem isn't it um i think we need a very very quick uh recap of history here when uh broadcasting services originated with things like the bbc uh, it was all very new and the broadcaster themselves had a weak position in order to sort of get their uh, get off the ground, as it were. They needed government support in in some form or other, just just uh, just to start. And it's interesting that when, for example, the BBC started, uh, print journalists refused to recognise the BBC as a, a as a sort of uh, a brother and sister uh, sort of relationship. It um, actually worked actively against uh, places like the BBC to ensure that they were restricted. And we see this, uh, we see these kind of restrictions not only in the UK but also uh, abroad as well. Now that's sort of the starting point for something like Ofcom to come along and regulate because, um, because really broadcast was born into slavery. Broadcast journalism was born into the slavery of thinking uh, that it had to perform public functions and it had this sort of quasi-public. Um, uh, element to it. Um, this, for me, has always been a fiction. I don't see any reason why uh, the the BBC uh, should do so. Now, the response to that is, well, of course, we pay our licence fee. Still, I don't really see why that means they've got to be a public service um, provider. I also don't think we should have to pay our licence fee, but, you know, that's a different matter. Uh, although, if anyone... Um, is listening who can give me a refund on my license fee, uh, I'd be grateful. Um, but I think that the whole idea of public service broadcasting, as beautiful as it is, is outdated and probably does deserve to just fade away into the background. So I would take a rather different view of this. I mean, I think public Shocker. service... I know, how unexpected. <laughs> public service broadcasting is not just about providing impartial coverage for the news much as that would be is a useful thing um it also includes things like educational broadcasts uh children's tv for which there is no great competitive market uh religious programming 
Um, and in those ways, it can protect minority groups. Some of the religious programming aspect uh, can do so. You get public service broadcasting in some of the uh, native languages of the United Kingdom, and particularly in Welsh. You get the public service channel that broadcasts in Welsh. And I think these are important uh, interests that are, are worth protecting. Um, and that's entirely separate from questions about the license fee and whether or not we should pay the license fee. I think the idea of encouraging um, companies like Netflix and Amazon to produce um, some of this sort of content doesn't have to be news coverage and journalism, but it could be quality children's programming, quality educational programming, the amount of money these companies have, they can produce astonishingly high caliber programs. And yet, we all know how little tax both of them pay uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, I have a feeling that Netflix might be changing the way that it does things. But certainly, um, for years, it has made uh, very many hundreds of millions of pounds in profit. Uh, in the United Kingdom uh, through a Dutch company and paid no tax on that. Um, and that's been quite controversial. Now, I, I think I, I would have absolutely no problem with uh, Ofcom coming around saying, you know what, if you're going to make this amount of money and not pay tax on it, the very least you can do is some public service broadcasting that is barely going to make a dent in your revenue, but actually might hit home, might reach the audience of the present and the future. So, you know, it's not a legal matter. This is just a kind of what I morally think these people should do matter. But um, mm. How can Ofcom insist on it, though? I mean, it, other than just telling Netflix this is what you've got to do, is there any enforcement behind it? Well, not, not unless government introduces a statute to make it a requirement for uh, people streaming in the UK... Uh, to provide this kind of content. Um, but other than that, no, there's there's nothing that Ofcom can do. I mean, I take the slightly, a slightly different view, again, from, from Tom, in that I think in terms of sort of minority and diverse um, programming, in terms of the sort of pluralism that, that Tom is talking about, the commercial market can and does provide that kind of content if there's a market for it. Well, that's the issue, isn't it? There often isn't a market for it because the very, the very nature of minorities is to, to be is, is, is to be a small group. Uh, and you will often find minority groups do not have a great deal of economic clout with which to uh, make a mark in the market. But, but the market can still... Oh, it's turned into a debate now about the market. That's good. Oh, we shouldn't have done this. Media law, contract, and capitalism. That will be the new 2021 title. Yeah, it, it has turned into uh, the Paul the capitalist against uh, Tom the <laughs> communist. Um, it's just because it's late in the it's late in the academic term, and Paul and I were having an email conversation along these lines last week, and we yeah. just kind of we're continuing that. But um, no, look, legally speaking. I don't think that Ofcom has got anything like the powers that it would need in order to enact the uh, proposals that this consultation document is 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 proposing. Um, and Paul's absolutely right; it would require significant statutory intervention from Parliament to give it that. They're interesting ideas, 
um, but they're, they're not things that uh, are going to have great legal significance, I think, in the near future. Do you think, though, I mean, whether it becomes Ofcom or not, is there something to be said for a regulatory service for streaming platforms? Because right now they are big multinational, tend to be American companies um, producing content. And there is no real uh, ability to report things, complain about things, point things out. So I wonder whether or whether it's appropriate and also how it would work mm. in the future, so some sort of Ofcom for Netflix. Yeah. Well, of course, this, again, we need a very brief history lesson here because, of course, in the past... Uh, there was something to be said for the kind of airwaves uh, argument uh, in that uh, the BBC and the commercial channels uh, were limited so that, you know, if you had a TV set, you only had a limited number of programs that you could watch. And therefore, the, the this notion of obligation uh, had more force to it, I think, because people... Uh, didn't have any choice but but no one's forcing anyone to to subscribe to netflix or amazon or apple tv or any of the others so if you choose to do so you can also choose to uh unsubscribe uh, to these services if you want to uh, of course they're su- sufficiently flexible that you can impose uh very uh very good child safety features so that children can't access without uh, a pin or something like that. So I think that's the difficulty that Ofcom or something like Ofcom would have to overcome in terms of regulating the content. Um, it, it's difficult to see what the what the moral claim is that would allow them to actually make the political claim that they should have this statutory power. I agree with Paul on that. Um, I, I think it's... Uh... There's also a lack of desirability in terms of regulating content because a lot of the people who subscribe to Netflix, to Amazon, the streaming services, one of the, the one of the things that's most appealing about it is it isn't censored. You know, they can listen to programs before the watershed if they want to that don't get bleeped out with the swearing, and um, and, and people do get that choice. So I think um, Paul's absolutely right. Much much harder to see the justification and the route to regulating content in terms of banning this or that um, on the streaming services. Where I do think Ofcom could do some good is in encouraging these companies to uh, do some public service broadcasting of the sort that I've indicated. One thing we haven't talked about, and, and what I find slightly more problematic, actually, is not uh, the the services like Apple and, and Netflix, because they are very market-driven uh, in terms of wanting to compete with each other to produce quality uh, content. Um, actually, what's more problematic for me is the sort of amateur services, in a way, things like YouTube, uh, Twitter, and uh, Facebook. Twitch, of course. Twitch is a big one now. A lot of streaming on Twitch. So um, I actually said Twitter, but yeah, let's pretend I said Twitch. No, but I said, <laughs> but um, that you know, for me, it's it's YouTube. It's all very well regulating uh, uh, Netflix, for example, but you know, children can easily access content on YouTube, and then it's a matter of how strict YouTube is with its and how nimble Netflix, uh, YouTube is in able to. Um, get rid of content that's problematic for children, for example. 
Well, I think we have um, fully covered every aspect of Ofcom report then. I want to briefly move on to uh, a take decision because I know this is one that Paul, you'll have been following. Um, another example of employee free speech being in jeopardy. Um, so this was Tate Modern's curator Mark Godfrey's suspension by, um, by the museum over his comments on Twitter, criticising the decision to delay a Philip Guston show. Guston's work features depictions of Ku Klux Klansmen, which Tate decided was inappropriate to display in light of the Black Lives Matter movement that happened over this summer. Godfrey said that the decision patronised fans and misunderstood the political commentary of Guston's work, which uh, is meant to be a, a commentary on how white people are complicit in systemic racism. So, you, you know, Paul, you've spoken a lot about this before. It's just another example, isn't it, of uh, an employee ramifications for speaking out in a private space. Well, privately in the sense that he's on Twitter, but off the clock, if you will. Yeah, I I was um I deeply troubled by the fact that um this man has been suspended from his job for what is effectively um a criticism of a criticism of his uh of his employer um I just this adds I think uh, another example to the to the debate on free speech rights uh, in the workplace. We've already talked in this program about the idea of horizontal rights. So um, it's not the problem that I have is not that the employer um, owes uh, the the duty to the um, to the employee because of course that can't be the case. Um, but I am concerned that there isn't greater protection for employees when they do uh, make these comments uh, in um, in the workplace. And the source, I think, of the protection has to come from something like an employment tribunal, uh, which recognises uh, its own obligation to interpret the law in a way that's compatible with the Human Rights Act. Okay, so I'm, I confess I struggle a little to see the coherence in Paul's been arguing today because um, he's expressed the view that members of the Labour Party who get suspended for speaking out against the decision of their leader um, essentially have it coming Um, but an employee of the Tate who speaks out against the Tate's policy should be protected Um, I, I, I must be missing something there because I know Paul to be a more coherent individual than that. But um, he'll 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 tell me where the coherence <laughs> is uh, in, in in just a moment. My yeah. issue uh, here is is um, uh, I, I I I tend to agree with the substance of what Paul's saying, um, which is that uh, this curator of the Tate um, should be free to speak his mind without being suspended. Um, but I actually think there's a, a an easier route to that legally with the Tate than there is with the Labour Party because the Tate is a public body. It is publicly funded. Um, and so it yeah, is true. arguably, I mean, we'd have to have a test case on it because exactly where you draw the line between a public body and a publicly funded body that is quasi-autonomous 
has yet to be fully determined by the courts. But you'd be on much stronger ground, I think, bringing that sort of test case for the TAFE. Um, and they ought to be protecting yeah. his uh, well, right to express true. himself. Now, that's, that says absolutely nothing about you know, the nature of the views that he's expressed or whether it was a, uh, a, a savvy thing to do in the context of his employment. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would agree with Paul in this instance. Um, uh, you know, but I, I, can't, I can't very well, um, I don't think, coherently hold the position that members of the Labour Party should not be suspended for speaking out against their leader whilst um, you know, uh, suggesting that, that, that this person uh, does not deserve that protection. So um, that would be my view. Yeah. So I, I think you make a, a very important point. And as soon as I said it, I thought, oh, he's going to get me on this. The difference for me is uh, the uh, the nature of the circumstances uh, in which these two suspensions uh, are happening. If you are suspended uh, in the employment context and you are dismissed and you do not get a satisfactory reference from your previous employer, perhaps they will only give you a dates-only reference then your future livelihood is at stake. Your ability to exist is at stake. And the ramifications for some individuals, not necessarily for this curator, but the ramifications for some individuals for a momentary outburst can be profound, so profound that they might not work again and serious consequences follow. That, for me, is the difference between suspension from one's job, which threatens uh, our ability to exist, and the suspension from uh, a private members club. You're suspended from a private members club. Well, there you go. Go and join a different one or start a different one. But your ability to exist as a human being isn't threatened uh, by your inability uh, to belong to the uh, Labour Party. Well, you know, I would see that differently, partly because I... I, for reasons expressed earlier, don't think that the, that any political party is simply a private members' club, as any other private. It's not. It's not the same as your local snooker club. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, it behaves place, in the same way. It's a place where you can express political views and have a degree of political influence on the. Sh- your own political destiny, the destiny of your, whether it's your local uh, council or the national politics. And it's not simply a matter of, well, go and find another one. Um, Is there another left-wing party with a 400,000-plus membership that's likely to uh, be capable of forming a government? It's not to say that it will do, but that it's competing for a place in government. No, there isn't. If you're kicked out of the Labour Party, um, then you are not likely to be able to find easily another vehicle for your political views. Whereas if you lose your job as a curator of the museum, one could say there are lots of museums, but there's only one Labour Party. Now, it's not to make light of it. And I, I agree with Paul that the employment situation can have very serious consequences for people's practical lives but i wouldn't say that that is in 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 some way that we should downplay the significance of 
being removed from and in all likelihood thereafter banned from, let's face it, um, a, a political party. And that's particularly true of Labour because we know that they have been blacklisting people for expressing support for other parties uh, and other causes and so forth, even if they're ones that would be politically aligned with Labour. Um, and they've done that in the past. It's been quite well documented. Finally, I do want to talk about the Depp appeal, which um, is apparently going to the Court of Appeal. Uh, Johnny Depp has decided that um, he's going to take the risk and challenge the High Court judgment that came down a couple of months ago now, labelling him a wife beater. Um, and I just wondered if anyone's looked into the grounds that he's appealing on and uh, there are any thoughts on his chances. I think in terms of um, his grounds for appeal, I, I can only think, but but Tom will correct me if I'm wrong here, but I can only think he's appealing on the basis that the judge reached uh, a perverse position on the facts, uh, which is an incredible... I don't think this is... This can't be an appeal on the basis of law, can it? Misunderstanding the law. It's got to be uh, an appeal on the facts. And that... I can't see the Court of Appeal agreeing to that. It, it doesn't matter how much uh, Johnny Depp and his lawyers say this was a terrible decision and incredibly wrong. It was a... Strikes me that it was a position that the court was entitled to uh, to reach based on the evidence that it had heard. And as as Tom says, the the case itself is forensically detailed um, in establishing the the points on which uh, Depp lost. I've had um, a couple of interesting questions after the last podcast we did on the judgment specifically. Um, and actually, I thought it, it could be a good opportunity for you two to go into a bit more detail on this. And that is, when you're doing a civil, um, a high-profile civil case like the death judgment, um, and there are criminal elements to it, so obviously a lot of examples of domestic abuse came out and were found on the balance of probabilities to be true, at what point does it actually become a matter for police investigation? And, and how are the civil courts kind of protected against what could then come and become a, a, a criminal trial? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, it's it's a it's a much lower standard of proof in civil law. So, uh, if an allegation is proven to the satisfaction of the court uh, for purposes of a defamation claim, that's a long way from um, saying that it would also be proven in a criminal context. Um, because one only has to prove balance of probabilities in a defamation trial and would have to there have to be proof beyond reasonable doubt for a criminal conviction. What it might do is spur the police to look at things, but I, I, it, normally what happens is that if a, a, a criminal-like incident or an incident that involves potentially criminal uh, behaviour is alleged, the police will investigate it first. And then it's the civil case that comes after and uses whatever evidence has been gleaned from the criminal investigation to to bolster uh, the case. And that's, I believe, what's happened here, because I think there were a couple of incidents where the police either were involved or um, there was a conscious decision on the part of um, a defendant not to go to the police on a particular incident. Certainly the incident in Australia around... Um, the importing of the the, you know, the dogs with the wrong paperwork 
Um, I mean, that was investigated criminally, and actually I think one or both of the parties took a conviction for that in Australia. Um, So that just goes in then as as evidence. I'm not aware of cases really where the civil case um, triggers... Uh, a criminal investigation to follow it. I'm sure, you know, if you dig around, you'll find some, but um, it doesn't tend to happen that way around. Um, apart from anything else, you wouldn't want the civil case to jeopardise um, the fairness of a criminal trial. Um, why, you know, civil cases can usually wait. It would be a good reason to get a stay if you needed to get a stay or, or to extend the limitation period. Yeah, and I think um, we can look across to the phone hacking uh trials as well um and the leveson inquiry you know there was a there was a lot there uh, where lord justice leveson for example said well i can't comment on this because there's an ongoing police investigation into it um the absence of a complaint might also be a problem uh, here um that is a complaint to the police um, but the standard, as Tom says, the standard of um, that you have to reach to com- convict is beyond reasonable doubt, and that means convincing, uh, you know, an impaneled uh, jury to um, uh, that that standard has been reached. That's very different from a, a civil standard, and we can also look across the pond and see an example in reverse, which of course was the O.J. Simpson trial where criminally uh, he was not uh, convicted um, for the murder of his of his wife, but at the civil level he was not convicted, but um, he lost a civil trial on that. So, yeah, so it, it's one of those things that doesn't tend to happen in practice, um, civil to criminal, but technically could. Well, um, yeah, that, that answer's better than my um, very tertiary explanations of the balance of probabilities to people's questions so i hope that listeners are satisfied with um that much more detailed account um and i think that is all we'll have time for for the last podcast of 2020 oh goodbye 2020 you will not be hello missed. 2021 <laughs> bring on 2021 we will be back, um, and as ever, we will be live on Twitter throughout the Christmas break. Um, have a wonderful Christmas to all of our listeners. Happy Christmas, Tom and Paul. Happy Christmas, Colette. And um, as ever, follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast. Thanks very much. Bye.